Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nish Nicolich. And today's guest is Dr. Alan Davis, who is an assistant professor of social work at the Ohio State University and an adjunct assistant professor in psychedelic research unit at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Davis's clinical experience includes working with people diagnosed with trauma-based psychological problems such as addiction, PTSD, depression, and anxiety, and his clinical expertise includes providing evidence-based treatments such as motivational interviewing, cognitive behaviour therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. The reason why I've asked Dr. Davis to come on the show today is he has a tremendous interest in why do evidence-based psychotherapies fail, particularly in the drug and alcohol treatment space. Uh, And he's looked at how we can go and improve them. One of the uh, uh, introductions that he brings into this space, along with many others, is uh, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. And uh, there's some really interesting insights that come from this research and and how therapy can be improved or enhanced by uh, assisting, I suppose, gateways of perspective that make psychotherapy a little bit more robust. Uh, Please welcome Dr. Alan Davis to bring this forward as a, uh, not necessarily a new concept, but certainly as a new consideration in therapy that still needs to be researched some, some, somewhere further, although there is some promising science. Enjoy the show. Dr. Alan Davis, a big thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. I'm really excited to get straight into this uh, conversation with you, in particular around this um, interest of yours. And I know that you've, you know, been intrigued by it in terms of why does psychotherapy uh, sometimes fail, uh, and what are the, some of the things that we can do to improve it. So, I might just uh, ask you the first question of how how did that even come about? That question, how did that interest you know show up for you? Well, prior to going to graduate school for uh, clinical psychology, I worked in a drug and alcohol treatment center for a number of years. And as part of that early clinical work, uh, I saw a lot of clients who would cycle through several times coming in and out of uh, treatment. And one of the things that I would ask my uh, superiors at the time was, you know, why is this? Why is it that people, you know, leave and they come back? And, and usually the response I got was, well, there's, they're not ready. There's something wrong with them. And never once did anyone say the treatment wasn't good enough. And it just didn't make sense to me, you know, that, that, that somehow the treatment was already perfect, but it wasn't working, um, didn't really make sense. And so I, I kind of left with that question of, you know, why is it that the treatment's not working and why is it that we blame the person who's in treatment? It's fascinating that, that we don't talk about the limitations. You know, it's almost like there, there, there's a bit of a blame, you know, the client's resistant or they're not ready, they have to hit rock bottom, whatever the traditional things that people might think of. Um, Versus maybe looking at, you know, that uh, treatment isn't necessarily a cure. It's uh, it's an aid to support someone, uh, but doesn't necessarily achieve the results that maybe the clinician or even that the client wants. Um, you know, that there's there's uh, challenges in there. Absolutely. And I think it's difficult sometimes for the clinician to consider their own limitations and, and what they're good at and whether what they're providing is 
the right fit for the person that's coming in. And so I think in a lot of ways, sometimes it's easier to assume that there must be something else going on other than uh, whether or not the treatment's working or not. And what I've seen time and time again in a lot of different uh, clinical environments is that oftentimes clinicians have good intention. Um, they're there to help. They, they want to provide the treatment the best they can. But we typically see in the research that, that there's not enough good fit between the types of treatments that someone has access to and the, uh, the outcomes that they're looking for. Do you mind talking us through a little bit of that research in, in, in terms of uh, what are we looking for for fit or you know, what is it that uh, would be effective at different times for a, a, a client? Because obviously clients are, are um, uh, attending at different stages in their life with different you know, uh, issues, difficulties uh, and so on. Um, can you talk us a little bit through the research that you've uh, looked into? Sure. We have looked at this in a couple of different ways, uh, primarily starting off with this question of addiction treatment and, and looking at why and in what ways that treatment offering may not be the best fit for some people. And one of the things, at least here in, in the United States, uh, I know it's a little bit different depending on, on where people are at in the world, but in the US, the, the primary offering for addiction treatment is an abstinence requirement that, that people are only really allowed into treatment if they choose to be abstinent from the, the substance that they're using. And if they don't, then, you know, they're essentially kicked out of treatment um, or they're told that it's not a good fit for them. But in actuality, there are lots of good options, uh, including things like non-abstinent interventions, um, moderation, controlled drinking or drug use, um, harm reduction therapy uh, that can be effective in helping people learn strategies to be safe and, and, and to increase their quality of life and their overall healthy functioning. But those interventions, for whatever reason, are unacceptable overall to the clinicians and the agencies that are providing this treatment. And because of that, um, the, there's a lack of fit between what, frankly, what probably most people need uh, and what they're being offered. Is there any truth to this concept of um, supporting, particularly in, in, in whether it's drug or alcohol abuse, uh, persons with removing the persecution around that space and in actual fact being a little bit more pro-social uh, rather than you know, chasing people down to uh, you know charge them with you know, possession of marijuana or whatever it might be to in actual fact you know identify people who need support and, and look at more social programs, you know, around belongingness and being connected to you know, values and interest in the community versus, a, you know, a more, uh, you know, war against drugs type of scenario where we'll penalise you and, and you know, you'll be an outcast, you know, from, from society. Is there any truth to that? I've, I've heard that argument as being a fairly um, pivotal one around saying, you know, we need reform. Uh, is, that, is that based in, in any... Uh, research uh, that, that that you're aware of? Well, we certainly have evidence from uh, certain places around the world that have switched the model from a criminal model of drug policy to one of a public health model. And uh, when you look at a country like Portugal, for example, that, you know, I think it's been almost 20 years now that they switched the model from one where drugs and drug users were persecuted uh, and criminalized to one where social programs were developed and support systems were put in place to help with things like job training and, and integration into communities. And what you've seen in that country over the last 20 years is pretty much across every indicator of public health metric and personal well-being metric, that country is thriving in regards to their uh, their efforts in this area. And so although it's not a 
a typical research study, it's a really great example, I think, of what can happen when drug policy actually starts to address what it means to uh, provide an environment for people where drug use and drug use disorders can proliferate. Um, I think that by criminalizing these substances, we've criminalized the people that choose to use them. And, and as long as the, the criminal approach to drug policy is the predominant one, I think we'll, we'll continue to fail um, in terms of the types of treatments that are offered. Can you talk us through your thoughts about why you think that model has been more successful? What are the elements uh, that that I suppose you know support and lean someone to being able to you know whether it's harm minimize themselves whether it's to you know have better uh, deliberate control over um, or, or management or moderation of of, of their use uh, what why are those policies so effective from from your point of view well I think in part it it takes a stance that, we need to reconsider how we conceptualize someone who is struggling with substance use. Uh, For example, um, I think oftentimes we forget that that the relationship that someone has with that substance is often for a lot of people, the most secure attachment that they have in that moment. Uh, It's something that provides relief from negative affect. It's something that that provides a sense of connection and belonging, uh, oftentimes to a, a social group. Um, it, it also provides an, a, a sense of identity for some people. You know, these are all formative, important aspects of what it means to be human. And so when you criminalize that act and that relationship, and you disconnect that person further from society, either by putting them in jail or putting them, you know, in a, a forced treatment scenario, you're essentially exacerbating the same problem that uh, caused them likely to seek out substances to begin with. Oftentimes people are seeking out substances for the same thing. They're looking for connection. They're looking to have a good time. uh, They're motivated by pro-social, you know, behaviors. And so a criminal policy, a criminalization policy, Oh, the only thing it does is exacerbate the problem of why people are seeking this out often, and it removes from them the, the benefits that they're getting out of it. So, you know, you, you, for me, it seems to make a lot of sense that when you do that, you're just creating a fertile ground for relapse, that if you don't replace that relationship with something else that's supportive and nurturing and can allow someone to grow and to, and to connect to a supportive social group, um, in some kind of way, then it's not surprising to me that people um, relapse very quickly when uh, the the penalty is removed when they're released from jail or when they're released from treatment. And so in a place like Portugal, what they've done is they've replaced uh, and pr- started providing options for those things that are needed. They've provided, you know, paid job training and connection to uh, healthcare, and they don't, they don't remove someone from society to, to punish them, uh, further exacerbating that sense of disconnection. Uh, instead, they invite them in to community, and they invite them in to participate. Um, and often, you know, that is a part of the way that they can help people develop more healthy attachments. That sounds amazing. That that, that to, to flip it over to be you know a healthcare model to say this is someone who is in need can be supported, and in in many ways let's get you know a community uh, approach to you know, assist this person to reconnect them with other aspects of the community that they might not have had you know, uh, during their time or maybe they've lost over time, which is obviously a very common thing that happens with with uh, that uh, you know, revolving door of you know rehabs and the like. Um, are there, are there, is, there, is there much statistics around sort of relapse and 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 you know is, is it data that you're aware of of how likely it is for for someone to you know go through a program and and you know, despite the best efforts and and despite trying to reintegrate you know from you know, an abstinence sort of space back into, you know, uh, community, uh, the air quotes there. Is is there much data around that? 
Well, the data around uh, that type of treatment model uh, consistently shows that the vast majority of people, um, I would say somewhere around three quarters or more of people who are forced into an abstinence-only treatment um, will uh, not be successful with that treatment. However, when you look at uh, matching people to the type of treatment that might be a good fit for them, and you look at markers that are related to non-abstinence outcomes in addition to abstinence, and, and if their goals are in alignment with the type of treatment that they're getting, you start to see that there are improvements um, in far more people when that matching occurs. So uh, what that tells me is that is that we need to do a better job of offering these different options to people and helping them understand uh, which option might be the best fit for them, at least initially when they get started in treatment, and to help clinicians best understand how to go about that matching process and to ob obviously be able to provide these other types of treatments. What do you think is getting in the, the, the way of that? Obviously, you know, as psychologists, we're, we're always thinking about evidence-based you know, approaches, you know, whether it's in our clinical work about whether we're using a you know cbt model or act or scheme or whatever it might be that 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 you know resonates for us as clinicians uh what what do you think is is getting in the way of using a more evidence-based model um of care for those with drug and alcohol you know, abuse um, dependence difficulties well, I think a big part of it is stigma and thinking about uh, the, you know, the larger policy structure around um, how we view substances and, and, you know, the differences between a model that, you know, when it focuses on the criminalization of the behavior instead of it from a public health standpoint, I think you're also then forcing clinicians and agencies into um, a very narrow path of, of considering what is evidence-based. Uh, for example, you know, if a clinician wants to uh, be supportive of a client who wants to pursue non-abstinence as a treatment outcome, they have to then wrestle with the fact that they're also supporting an individual with something that, that might be against the law. And so if that's the case, I think that creates um, fertile territory for there to be an ethical quandary um, of how to best do that, even if the evidence base shows us that non-abstinence is a worthwhile target, um, that obviously conflicts with, with drug policy. And some clinicians that we've that we've surveyed and asked about this, some of them say, you know, it doesn't matter to them what the policy says, they're going to do what's best for the client. Um, and others, you know, bring up this issue of this inconsistency between policy and practice that really does get in the way for them because they don't feel like there's a clear path forward for them to do that in a way that um, that they would feel comfortable with. It's interesting because I've always practiced with the concept in mind uh, and this comes from, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy around how does someone want you know, drugs or alcohol to feature in their life? You know, so it's really a question of functionality um, and, and, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, I think poses a, a question of engaging someone with the, about around their relationship with that 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 sub substance and what they want it to look like, which is really in in, in no different way, a you know, question of you know how do you want your intimate relationship to look like with your partner, um, you know, and we, we get to at least shape it. There's a question around shaping it, and and you know within that there's always a question of functionality because you know, most people don't say, look, I really genuinely want to have these major binges where it gets out of control and then I can't show up to work and then I end up becoming unreliable and I've lost three jobs. So I want that to repeat. Um, I've never heard that, 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 that occur, but I've certainly heard yeah, a lot of clients say, um, you know, I want it to be, you know, within the same social way as it is for those around me. So I can enjoy, you know, a beer or a wine with them, or, you know, maybe even having a, a glass or, or, or two while making dinner. But I do want it to, to, you know, in essence, kind of stop there so I can enjoy the rest of my family and I don't, you know, become uh, disconnected from them. Um, and while I sit in my chair and watch television, you know, being drunk, it's causing too many issues. So um, it, it is interesting because, you know, functionality kind of speaks to to that space of, of um, uh, a non-abstinence-based approach. Absolutely. And part of that direction, I think, also 
requires the clinician and the individual who's uh, being treated to consider those benefits, consider the positive things that they might want from a, perhaps a more functional relationship with alcohol or drugs in order to figure out how they're going to get there, how they're going to achieve that goal. And I think that, that that's something that is not well discussed in, in a lot of clinician circles that I've been in is, is thinking about what the actual benefits are of this, of this behavior. And there are quite a few, otherwise people wouldn't be doing it. So, um, so it's important to think about what those benefits are and to think about this dynamic between, you know, benefit and consequence. And, and sometimes the scales are going to be tipped onto one side uh, more than the other, uh, but they likely are still both there. And so, uh, it's it's essentially one of the reasons why I started looking at some of the benefits of other psychoactive drugs and the potential that they might offer to be helpful in this treatment process. Uh, things like psychedelics um, that provide uh, a benefit for a lot of people um, and thinking about the ways that those unique benefits might be an advantage. Before we jump into, into that space, can you talk us through a little bit about how the uh, matching would occur in terms of what would be most beneficial for a client? What are we looking for? What are those options that are out there um, that, that makes, I suppose, an approach more sticky, uh, if you will, um, that's going to have a, you know, a greater therapeutic outcome uh, than, let, let, let's say, potentially you know, just your talk therapy you know, at, 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 at that time. Well, part of that matching process, I think, involves uh, having a conversation in the early stages of the therapeutic relationship that helps to identify what someone's goals are and coming to determine whether or not the clinician is um, adequately trained to help that client meet those goals. I think the the, the prescription, at least in, in the US, has often been an assumption that abstinence is the only offering. And so when something starts off with that lens, the, the client isn't really given the choice. They're not given the autonomy or empowerment to self-direct their own treatment. And so it, it must re, it must require a conversation and an openness on the part of the treatment uh, staff or the agency to want to engage in that type of, of question, you know, not just, you know, are you willing to do this treatment that we're going to give you, but, you know, what treatment even do you want? What is the goal that you have? And, and I think by switching to a lens of, of self-determination and autonomy, we start to open up that type of conversation of what's actually going to be a good fit for that person. Obviously, the agency or the clinician would need to also be able to provide those options, um, which is another challenge in terms of implementation, you know, and training. Uh, but I think it, 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 it needs to first start with that conversation. Yeah, wonderful. Um, Jumping back to to psychedelics, psilocybin, um, I'm assuming that's that might be one of those that you're that you're um, uh, alluding to. Can you talk us through that research? Because I have heard uh, there be yeah, trials in that in that space around you know, supporting, you know, aiding uh, therapy with uh, psychedelics, in particular around drug and alcohol. Uh, you know, um, difficulties and issues that people are people are experiencing what what's the sort of research that's out there and obviously that you've worked on yourself so there's been a number of studies at this point looking at uh, changes that people have had with their substance use following a psychedelic experience and we've done those studies in uh, large-scale surveys that have uh, involved people from all over the world who uh, have reported that you know kind of spontaneously they you know, had a psychedelic experience, they weren't intending uh, for things to change with their alcohol use or their other drug use. But after the fact, realized that, you know, there were changes that occurred uh, in their use and uh, their relationship with these other substances. And, and for the vast majority of the people that we've surveyed, they've reported that they've either reduced or even in some cases completely quit using um, alcohol, cannabis, stimulants, opioids, um, kind of across the, um, the substance uh, spectrum uh, have seen these reductions or, uh, or even complete amelioration of use following the psychedelic experience. And 
so uh, what that also is paralleling is some of the research being done in clinical trials. Uh, there's been trials completed with individuals who have an alcohol use disorder, uh, nicotine use disorder, and there's currently trials underway for folks with uh, uh, cocaine use, uh, opioid use, and uh, even a new one coming up with methamphetamine use disorder. So, uh, and across these studies, um, the results are promising, showing that that relapse uh, rates are, are low and, and incredibly lower compared to other treatments out there. Um, and the, the success rate of, of that treatment uh, is pretty striking. Wow. Uh, what 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 are the researchers saying are the uh, the factors that are leading to that? I mean, I understand that that uh, uh, psychedelic assisted sort of therapy usually has a you know a long um, intake process around you know, goal setting, what someone's wanting to to achieve and get out of their. Um, I'm not sure what the even right language is, but uh, their 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 experience. Um, there's obviously uh, you know, a consideration around how that will be guided and supporting during that that experience, and then there's plenty of integration that goes on for numerous sessions after that. Is that basically how how, how that works? It's still in line with the therapy model, um, and, and and there's some specifics that people want to to address, and it might not even necessarily be related to the alcohol itself. Could be related to relationships or you know their past, um, you know grievances, traumas, so on, um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's assisted through our process, and then obviously discussed through through therapy, um, uh, you know post post experience. Is that kind of how it usually uh, operates? That is the general approach is this period of preparation therapy um, followed by the, the psychedelic session. And then after that, this integration process of, of kind of talking about what's happened and, and working with behavior change and, and kind of moving forward. Um, often there are two or three uh, psilocybin or psychedelic sessions as part of that overall package. So um, typically there's a, approximately you know, 30 to 50 hours of therapeutic time uh, with that individual, including those sessions uh, with the, uh, the drug. And so uh, what's interesting is that um, some of the studies are also pairing as part of the therapy other evidence-based uh, approaches that we know are, are useful. So for example, in the alcohol use disorder studies, the therapy also includes a motivational interviewing component to kind of enhance the, the what we already know as being kind of helpful from, uh, from that modality. Um, in the tobacco use disorder uh, studies, they're, they're pairing that with a CBT model and kind of looking at things like creating a target quit date and, and some of the other things that we know can be successful from uh, CBT. So, so they're not just doing that supportive structure uh, in some of these studies. Um, they're, they're really trying to take what, we've, what we already know as, as kind of best practice and trying to see if we can augment it with uh, adding in the psilocybin session. 30 to 50 sessions is incredible, or hours, my apologies, is, is, is incredible. That's... Um... Uh, you know, the, the only sort of methodology that I, I see other than inpatient uh, work is, is DBT programs that I think when I calculate it was almost around that 80, 80 session mark over a six month period. If you do two skill sessions and the one individual uh, per week, uh, that's an incredible amount of, of uh, investment. Absolutely. And, and certainly that type of investment, both on the, the part of the provider as well as the part of the client, uh, must contribute to the outcome. You know, just having that type of commitment and willingness to go into that process. Uh, it does, you know, depend on how many uh, psilocybin sessions there are. You know, if you think about it, each session is an entire day. Uh, that the individual is there uh, with their clinicians. There's usually uh, always two clinicians that are working with that individual. And so that's a you know eight to 10 hour a day just for the drug administration session. So if you have two or three of those right there, you know, you're up to you know 25 to 30 hours of uh, the treatment just with those. That makes sense then. Wow, so it lasts an entire day, like in terms of prepping and you know administration by the time that the the um, psilocybin begins to to take effect, and then obviously needs to wear off, and 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 well, obviously the experience wears off, and then um, some form of integration, I'm assuming at that point, and support. Um, 
I didn't know it took that long. That's that that that, that probably explains a lot of the that thirty to fifty hours. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah, and you know, part of that is also because in a research setting, you know, there's a lot of uh, the day of there's paperwork to be filled out and there's at least an hour to an hour and a half of just getting kind of settled in the space prior to dosing. And of course, we don't want people to leave, you know, without, you know, ensuring that the drug is completely worn off and getting some time to uh, to have some time to interact with the individual before heading out for the day. So usually um, the actual drug effects are anywhere between four and six hours, uh, depending on the individual. Uh, but we have that extension on either side just to kind of uh, ground the individual. Can you talk us uh, through a little bit of what you've seen with clients, uh, whether it's through that 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 experience or post, uh, in terms of what what do they report? You know, why is um, uh, this aiding with with, with psilocybin uh, have so much? Uh, greater affect that's seen in the research what what are your know, clients reporting that at least for you stands out as as um, improving on what we're already doing well one of the interesting features of the psilocybin experience is that it can produce these types of acute effects that that often are directly relevant to addiction treatment or even depression and anxiety or trauma treatment. Um, Often what people are reporting throughout these different trials, as well as in the survey studies that we've conducted, is that parts of their experience under the influence of psilocybin help them see their life in a different way, help them see their problems in a different way, that they had this insight, this psychological insight, that discovery or a new awareness about the past or or the future, where they wanted to go in life. Um, And this insight then shows up statistically in our modeling as something that is related to positive outcome. Uh, Combined with that insight experience uh, is the mystical experience, which is one of the hallmarks of uh, psychedelics as well, where people will have some type of spiritual or otherwise um, connected experience with something greater than themselves. Often it's reported as the universe. Uh, Some people report it as as an experience of God or a God of their understanding. Um, But when you combine these experiences together, these insight and mystical experiences, uh, it's likely, you know, a dynamic uh, experience that is producing uh, something that's been termed quantum change, where, you know, something can produce a rapid and profound change in someone's behavior when you have something that's so deeply felt on a spiritual level occurring in the same experience where these new realizations about themselves are occurring. Sort of speaks to, if I talk about it from a you know, CBT model, it, it, it speaks to really a significant change in a belief. You know, it's a, a new belief is formed during that experience where there's insight, perspective around their life, their history, what's happened, um, and, and, and maybe some stickiness in terms of uh, adoption of that so that it's not just a fleeting, oh, that makes sense. There's a great insight and then it sticks because it's got that mystical component. It must be true because I feel connected and maybe uh, you know, that allows me to hold on to that new belief structure um, outside of the experience so that it has some therapeutic, uh, long-term ther- therapeutic outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. There's also, uh, I think, some pretty frequent um, experience that involves people getting connected, seeing themselves in the context of their problem rather than kind of being fused with the identity of their problem um, and other kind of acceptance and commitment therapy um, practices that often in, in ACT therapy, we're trying to create those types of experiences. But with psychedelics, they often come up as a part of the experience themselves that you don't have to necessarily, you know, do an activity to help someone, you know, see this. It actually, oftentimes people report seeing them, literally seeing themselves in the context of their problems, as opposed to, you know, being right in the kind of fused with it. 
Um, and then also often there's a values piece that people connect to something deeply meaningful that they realize is important to them that they've lost sight of in their life and that somehow that becomes clearer to them in these experiences. And it, it really provides an opportunity for the integration therapy after the drug session day to then take hold into helping people orient their path towards these uh, values. It's interesting because as you're talking, I'm reflecting on how there might be some of those qualities, at least at an edge level, where let's say, for example, someone who might be highly intoxicated might be disinhibited for a period and kind of recognize that they haven't been maybe, I don't know, a great friend or that they've neglected everyone while they've gone on their own you know, painful journey of, of you know, whatever's going on for them. And friends might kind of feel like, oh, my God, I think they, they might have, uh, you know, turned a corner, although there's a realisation. But in the morning, there's absolutely no stickiness. They're, 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 there's no integration of that. Half the time they haven't even remembered. Um, you know, they're, 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 there's kind of like the, these potential moments of, of disinhibition which might give insight, but there is clearly no, no connections formed. Um, versus genuine insight of saying, I've never seen my life from this perspective. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, maybe I can see it with a more open mind, not so much with a threat or a fear. Maybe I can observe my life in, in, in a way um, as an observer, so to speak. And I'm only guessing here because I obviously don't have any experience in, in that space, but Potentially by, by observing one's life, seeing one's life, uh, I can um, examine it without fear and, and potentially with curiosity, with the guidance of a therapist there um, or several, uh, and combine that with some sort of you know, mystical experience to kind of say, wow, you know, that actually feels meaningful, you know, and that, 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 that was um, something to really take take note of and, 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 and be valuable. I'm going to not discard that, but in actual fact, I'm going to really, I can't kind of forget about it. You know, I, 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 even if I try to forget about it, I, I, it feels so different to anything else I've experienced. So, you know, maybe that, that uniqueness is, 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 has got a powerful effect as well. Yes, I think the opportunity to 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 take that type of insight experience and to make it a productive one uh, really does involve something that needs to happen afterwards. And, you know, these insight experiences and even spiritual mystical experiences, you know, they happen with some regularity for people, even outside of psychedelics, you know, these, these can happen spontaneously. Um, you know, in fact, I think in a lot of ways, the, the whole kind of rock bottom metaphor of drug addiction treatment often includes in people's description of that, that rock bottom, a moment of insight and a moment of often, you know, something of a mystical quality that something kind of, you know, showed up differently for them in the experience and they had a reconnection to things that were important to them for that, that moment. And when that's paired with people then, you know, finding the supportive structure that they need for some people that might be 12 step groups or some other type of peer support uh, mechanism. For some people, that's other types of treatment. Uh, and for some, that's even self-help, you know, and kind of working with them with, with their own problems in a new way. But it takes something, you know, to, to, to afterwards to really integrate and, and work on that experience. Otherwise, regardless of whether it's spontaneous or whether it's psilocybin uh, occasioned, uh, those experiences will still be fleeting. Um, you know, we have some people in the studies who will have these experiences of deep insight and mystical components. And, you know, their lives don't necessarily improve. Um, in a recent depression trial that we completed, you know, 54% of the people in the study were in remission from depression at one month, which is an amazing number compared to other treatments that are out there. But that means that 46% of the people in the study weren't. And so um, often for those people, I think what happens is, is they get this, this experience but they're not either able or willing to move forward in the direction um, that the experience highlighted for them might be more useful. That makes a lot of sense. I, I had a, uh, a extremely close friend, you, know, uh, you might even call him a best friend that uh, died a couple, well, about 18 months ago. And, and I uh, talk about him quite regularly in that he left me with a, a real genuine gift. And, and that was about, 
being able to reflect in my on my life and, and ask myself, how do I want to actually live it? Um, and you know that that's that whole thing where we all say, you know, life is short, but um, for some reason, I was able to see more perspective um, in his death uh, and apply that to mine, and and I feel change change quite uh, significantly personally because of it. Um, and that's a kind of mystical sort of sort of uh, you know element. Not not that there was any spiritual side to it, but but there was certainly an insight and and, and um, great you know uh, immediate integration. You know it, it meant something that I can't forget. You know it's kind of burnt into my brain around you know wanting to to embrace the rest of life and uh, build lots of memories. And so and and I think about it regularly, like. You know, it's with me all the time, but I've always joked with with uh, you know colleagues and even with my friends uh, after watching um, uh, the movie uh, Fight Club, where there's a scene where uh, Brad Pitt, uh, uh, yeah, it's Brad Pitt. He, um, I think he grabs a stranger and he he pulls out a gun. I think it is to stranger's head, and he says, you know, what what did you want to be growing up and i think the gentleman says like a veterinarian or something he said well what happened he goes i you know dropped out or something and he says well you know give me a license i know where you live you know go out and become a veterinarian or i'm going to come out and you know come after you uh and it's almost like this you know near-death experience changes the the, the trajectory obviously is a bit more comical and and and, and uh, uh but it's almost like you know if we could bring a near, near death experience or something that is so strong it forces us to reflect um certainly not suggesting we do that because you know you and i both know about post-trauma and the, and the like <laughs> uh, but but there's something there there's a stickiness around there and that's what i'm kind of hearing is that some of that mystical or spiritual stuff that does happen outside of you know assisted uh, assisted type of approach like this um happens it happens every day you know there are there are lots of people around who, who they can pinpoint when life changed for them and, and and it's usually something significant happened absolutely and you know whether it's a uh, an accident, a, a trauma, or whether it's the loss of a loved one. For some people, it's the the birth of a child or yeah. uh, someone close to them uh, having a child. You know, these pivotal moments in life often bring about the same type of insight or or somewhat of a you know kind of alternative consciousness that that in, in brings about a new awakening or or a direction or a commitment um, in someone's life. And so it's not surprisingly that, you know, when we ask people about, you know, how meaningful the psychedelic therapy was or how significant it was, often they're rating it as one of the single most or top five meaningful and significant experiences of their lives, usually in the context of these other major life events, you know, comparing, comparing and contrasting it to the birth of a loved one, uh, or the, the death of a loved one. Um, and, and I think what that really highlights is, is that, we're experiencing these shifts in consciousness and 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 commitment to to things in life, uh, in ways that uh, I think if we could identify uh, as they were happening and had the type of language and support to to really capitalize on them, we'd probably see that that overall there's there's benefit there's there's light in all of these experiences. Why do you think there's such great fear around? this space there's obviously a growing body of uh, trials that are you know showing you know uh, great therapeutic outcomes you know whether it's around uh you know uh, end of life treatment um or you know, nearing end of life or you know being able to reconcile solve that whether it's through trauma addiction why are we so hesitant you know because i i know even myself i if someone were to say to me, hey, Nish, you know, I can go out and, and do this and it's going to be, you know, completely safe and, and you'll be in good hands, I'm a bit scared of it. There, 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 there's something that that uh, still makes me a bit afraid, you know, that, that you know, um, what, what are your thoughts having probably thought about this much more, much more than, than, than the next person? Well, it kind of comes back a little bit to how we started the conversation in my mind. I think that 
Part of that is because of the way that, that these substances have been talked about for the last 30, 40 years in, in uh, most countries around the world. You know, they've been, they've been labeled as dangerous and harmful, even though the scientific evidence didn't support that designation. And they've been labeled as not having medical value, even though there was actually thousands of studies that were done before they were made illegal, showing that there was potential for medical application. And of course, then even before that, there were, you know, generations of people across a variety of indigenous cultures who were using these substances, you know, long before Western medical uh, providers started exploring them uh, as an adjunct to therapy. So, you know, I think that part of it is that for most of us, we've grown up in a time where these mislabeling of these substances, I think has really affected our own understanding of what we assume about them. But when you look at the evidence, when you look at the science, it's pretty clear that they are safe, uh, especially when people are properly screened and when they have the right support uh, to help guide the experience and to integrate it afterwards, uh, that there you know, are very few uh, adverse effects and that across different populations of uh, challenging, uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, conditions where there aren't a lot of, you know, success rates or a lot of options for people um, that we're seeing that there's a signal of, of efficacy here, um, which I think ultimately speaks to, you know, the ubiquitous of, of how we might be tapping into a transdiagnostic mechanism of, of healing and growth um, with this approach that, uh, that doesn't always exist very cleanly with the treatments that we have currently. I really like that, 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 space around the transdiagnostic sort of model that uh, we're treating the human uh, not not a um, a category that that uh, you know we, we, we place because we know that uh, uh, there isn't great um, reliability the moment that you get you know, numerous uh, healthcare workers doing diagnosis, we, we don't get the consistency that we would like. And so I think transdiagnostic at least allows us to all uh, describe the client's story um, and, and, and uh, situation um, accurately and collectively. Uh, so we do have great reliability. And I think from there we can support someone rather than from a diagnostic set. So a set of, uh, you know, uh, criteria and, and, and thoughts. So I'm a big fan, big fan there. Uh, one of my uh, last final questions to ask you as a, as a researcher and, and, and obviously, um, you know, someone who, who uh, uh, not only looks, looks at this, but, but uh, you know, does it with quite scientific eyes. Have you had an opportunity to uh, have any sort of psilocybin assisted uh, support yourself is that something that is um, considered to be useful as part of uh, part of training uh, how does that kind of look how do the universities you know explore this this this, this side of things or is it still just very much you know, needs to be with a clinical population or so-called clinical population Yes, unfortunately, that is something that because of the legal status of psilocybin uh, in the US, at least, uh, the, the option for the providers or the researchers who are doing this work right now to be able to have the treatment themselves uh, really doesn't exist. Uh, it could exist if there were funding to pay for it as a part of a study, uh, a study about training clinicians or, or training individuals who are going to provide this work. Uh, and there is some model for that um, with other uh, treatment modalities. Uh, but right now, there hasn't been such a study. So at this point, there hasn't been that opportunity. Um, oftentimes, the type of things that we're doing uh, to both uh, prepare. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's somewhat of an apprenticeship model at this point. So the research has been going on for about twenty years, and and the folks who have trained me, um, kind of, you know, I worked alongside of them um, for a number of years, learning uh, how to provide this treatment. And the folks that trained them were some of the folks that back in the fifties and sixties were around when it was legal, and they were able to uh, do a lot of this work in a legal structure. And so. Um, you know, a lot of it has been this kind of apprenticeship uh, training model since then. Okay, fantastic. Where can people go to find out more, whether it's about your work or uh, more broadly around uh, you know, support for drug and alcohol abuse dependence, uh, whether it's around the psilocybin sort of space? Have you, have you got anywhere you can point our, our listeners to? 
Well, you can uh, keep up with uh, what's going on uh, with my work and, and some of those resources at uh, www.cpdre.org, as well as uh, www.hopkinspsychedelic.org. And uh, either of those websites provide access to kind of what's going on currently at uh, the different research teams that I'm involved with. And is there any particular piece of research that uh, really stands out for you in terms of what keeps you excited about this space uh, before I let you go? Well, you know, for me, it's starting to see research that's coming out now that's that's looking at uh, the therapeutic components, the integration, you know, what's happening um, after people have these experiences in order for us to dig in and, and better understand uh, how to be helpful to individuals. Um, in addition to that, yeah, we're also now starting to look at uh, short-acting psychedelics uh, that only have acute effects for somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes uh, in order to uh, look at the next wave of what we're going to likely need in order to actually scale this type of treatment to the, you know, the hundreds of millions of people that need it. Um, a full-day psilocybin session is great. Uh, it's also incredibly costly and time-intensive. And so uh, there are shorter-acting psychedelics that uh, can really bring that uh, total effort down uh, and potentially there's a signal there that they help a therapeutic effect as well. So uh, that's kind of the next thing that's uh, got me excited. Well, that does definitely uh, sound, sound exciting because as you say, accessibility is going to be you know, an issue once you know, approval is, is provided, whether it's the US, Australia, anywhere around the world, because you know, a, a day is going to uh, likely exclude a lot of people you know who, are, who don't have that that sort of um you know uh, monies and funds uh, or just the fact of resources there are not enough clinicians out there to spend you know uh, a day per person um who needs this sort of support so um that that, that sounds you know wonderful and and you know I hope that uh, one day, you know, both those models uh, are, are available to, to, to everyone and, and um, yeah, I wish you the best in the rest of the research uh, because I think it's, it, it's definitely something I think that can really um, assist what we've currently got, particularly in some of those spaces like, you know, drug and alcohol and, you know, different trauma, trauma work and, and, and like, well, well maybe, maybe it's just only fair to say, you know, to help humans uh, because there's a you know a common thread in all of that humans are going through a difficult life so um, hopefully we see more more of uh, more of you uh, more of the research you know, in, uh, to come as well so thank you very very much for for today and um, yeah all the best I might have to try and maybe uh, to come back on the show at some point when 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 other uh, research you know evolves a little bit further well thank you so much it was great to meet you thanks bye if you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.